0: Merry Christmas! What? That was awesome. Thank you, worship team. How fun was that? No, really, how fun was that? Oh, good. Okay. I'm not sure you're with me yet. Hey! Merry Christmas! Isn't this good? Good! It's fun to be together on Christmas Eve, not in the evening of Christmas Eve, but in the morning of Christmas Eve, and to still have an evening or, or Christmas Eve service, I should say. That's what we want to do. We want to we worship our God who gave us His one and only Son on that very first Christmas. And so our prayer this morning has already been that Jesus would be exalted in this place, that we would be directed toward Him, that we would go vertical as we like to say around here, and just focus in on who he is and what he has done for us in sending us his son. And so as we, uh, uh, we're going to, I'm going to talk a little bit here, and then we're going to uh, have communion together, and then I'll talk a little bit more, and some of you are already snickering under your breath, yeah, he's going to talk a little bit, right? Well, we'll see how that goes, okay? But anyway, I I want us to, this morning, we're going to finish up the book of Ruth. We have this Christmas uh, month have been looking at Ruth, and we've been looking at Redemption's love song in Ruth, and we've been seeing how it relates To us today as we celebrate Christmas and 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 today we finish in the fourth chapter of Ruth the last chapter So if you haven't done so, would you please return with me to Ruth chapter 4? Today we're going to talk about love We are going to focus in on the love of this Redeemer that is revealed to us in uh, the book of Ruth But as we do, I I want us to wrestle with a question. What is love? Now, I know several months ago, we had some character, some goofy character, that played a song, What is Love? And he came up here with shades on, and he danced. I'm not going to mention who that is. I'm not even going to tell you. He was related to me in some way. But listen, he wasn't related to me by blood, just by marriage, okay? So don't hold that against me that Dustin did. I mean, oh, wait, I wasn't going to say his name, was I? <laughs> no. But that's a good question. What is love? And, and I, I kind of want us to think about that again this morning, because what I think we'll discover this morning is, is love is hard to define. It's, it's really hard to define, you know. Uh, I, I found some different definitions of love as we ask that question, what is love? Someone has said, love is a many splendid thing. Very poetic, but it doesn't help us define love. Someone else has said, Life is one fool thing after another. Love is two fool things after each other. Probably true, but it doesn't help us define love. Someone else has said, Love is like math. It's a simple idea, but it gets complicated. Math. You probably have heard that statement, "If you love something, set it free. If it comes back, it was always an, or it was and always will be yours. If it never returns, it was never yours to begin with." Well, somebody has finished that out by saying adding this line to it, and if it just sits in your living room and messes up your stuff, eats your food, uses your telephone, takes your money, and never behaves as if you actually set it free in the first place. You either married it or gave birth to it. <laughs> pretty pretty good, huh? Love. But, but still, we haven't come up with a definition of love. And maybe, maybe today we could ask some kids what love is. I know the kids are here. And, and I've got some responses from kids as they try to define love. For example, Carrie, age five, says, Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving clone and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Pretty close, huh? Karen, age seven, says, I like this one. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> I'm watching too many cartoons, I think. Tommy, age six, says, Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. It's probably getting closer to the true definition. And closely to that is Rebecca, age eight, who says, When my grandma got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandpa does it for her now all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. Tr- and then she says that is love. But the one I like, especially this time of year, is from Bobby, age seven. He says, "Love, it's what it's. Excuse me. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Pretty insightful, huh?" Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Love. Hard to define in, in words. In fact, I would, I would submit to us today that words do not do justice to the true meaning of love. But I would say, on the other hand, we know love when we see it, right? I mean, we, we can look at an old couple who are holding hands, walking down the road together, and, and we go, that's love. Or, or we see these things that some of these kids have described. Love is best demonstrated rather than defined, wouldn't you say? Today in chapter 4 of Ruth, as we finish this incredible grand narrative out, what we're going to discover is we will be able to go, aha, that's love. We might not have a definition of it by the time we're done, but we can certainly point to Ruth chapter 4 and go, that's it. That's love right there as we talk about a Redeemer's love this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for this incredible book that we get to study this morning. Thank you for this chapter that, that doesn't just define for us what love is, but, but it reveals it to us as we get to watch a Redeemer's love. And so, Father, I pray today that you would work in our hearts and lives, that you would reveal your great love toward us Help us to see you in all of this. I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And I pray that Jesus would be exalted. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we left chapter 3 last week... We, we saw some things. We, we, we saw a daring plan put into motion, which was followed by a midnight encounter. Ruth goes out to where Boaz is, and, and, and it's at night. And then we see this incredible, extravagant pledge that Boaz gives. He says to Ruth, all that you have asked of me, I will do. But we get to chapter 4, and there are still some things that are yet Unresolved. Naomi, even though the promise is there, Naomi still does not have a redeemer. She does not have an heir to her husband's uh, 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 property and to his name. She's left without an heir. And then we look and we we recognize that Ruth. She's put herself in this vulnerable position. She's asked basically for boaz to marry her but now she's left vulnerable waiting and wondering whether it will be boaz who will become her husband or this other redeemer who is actually first in line to redeem and and she's left wondering probably biting her fingernails who whose wife do i become can you imagine that and then as as we look in chapter four we'll see something about land what is it about the land That is so important in this this chapter. So let's let's look. What we see is is we saw this extravagant pledge last week. Boaz says, everything you've said, everything you've asked, I will do. And what we find is in chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz makes good on his pledge. Notice what it says. Now Boaz, verse 1, had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Verse 2, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now what's going on here? What we need to understand is, first of all, Boaz is convening a meeting. He's, con- he, he's calling together a meeting. And so he, he goes to the city gate and he waits because he knows that this other nearer kinsman redeemer, this one who has first choice to redeem, is going to come out of that gate, the city of Bethlehem, at some point. And the scripture, I love the word, and behold, behold. As if by chance, but we know better, right? This whole book is about the providential hand of God. It's not by chance that this Redeemer comes walking through that gate. It's by God's direct providence that the Redeemer comes walking through the gate. Behold, he comes. And what does does Boaz say to him? Hey, sit down right here. And then he gathers 10 elders and he says, hey, sit down right here. What's going on here? First of all, we need to understand this meeting is convened and it's a public meeting. It's done at the city gate, which is where many meetings took place in that day. But it's also going to be a legal, a binding meeting because he's gathered 10 elders. These elders are there as a as a quorum to, to affirm and confirm the decision that is going to be made there that day. This is, a, this is a meeting that is convened by Boaz. But I also want you to see something, brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen. Notice what the ESV says, and it doesn't do justice to what it, what it really means. He, he, says, he says, sit down here. And then the word is friend. Some of your translations might use a different term, but friend is used in the ESV. The NET, New English Translation, says, sit down here, John Doe. And it's true. It's right on. See, the, the, this, this master uh, uh, storyteller, he uses what is called a, a, a farrago. It's a, it's a literary device used, and, and, and we have it in English. A farrago is where two meaningless rhyming words are put together to bring a new idiom. In other words, we say hodgepodge. Two rhyming words. Don't have any meaning, but we put them together and somehow there's a meaning there. We use the word heebie-jeebies. We use the words hocus-pocus. That's, those are faragos. Well, in the Hebrew, the actual words are poloni-almoni. Poloni-almoni. That's the word. What Boaz is saying is, sit down here, poloni-almoni. Probably the best translation is John Doe because there's really no meaning. What, what this, this writer is doing is he's saying, Boaz said to this guy, sit down here, Mr. No-Name or Mr. So-and-so. Now, did Boaz use his real name? I'm sure he did. Did the author of Ruth know the real name of this other kinsman redeemer? I I believe he did as well. But he's using this as a literary device to help us, the reader and the hearers of this book, go, this no name, no good, nobody... He's Mr. So-and-so to us. We we don't even have a name. We've heard all about Boaz. We've heard his grace, about his grace. We've seen his kindness. We've seen him helping and and making it possible for Naomi and Ruth to to have provisions. We've seen all about Boaz. But this now Mr. So-and-so comes in, and what gives him the right? And, and And it causes us to do this even more, to go we want Boaz. We want Boaz. Right? Is that what you're doing in your own heart right now? Chanting? Because we would never do that in a Baptist church. But in our own hearts, we might go, we want Boaz. We we don't want Mr. So-and-so. That's the author. He does that intentionally so that you and I are going, yeah, we want Boaz even more. We have this no-name guy. We don't want him. But this meeting is convened with Mr. So-and-so, and and now negotiations take place. Notice verse 3. Boaz does this. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders, my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. He's landed on the line. Now, this is the first time we hear of land. We have heard of Naomi coming back during a, a time in Bethlehem where God has once again provided bread in the house of bread. The famine is now over. But this is the first time we hear that there's, there's land. And, and so what we come to recognize is that Elimelech and Naomi had a parcel of land that they hung on to those 10 years they went into Moab. And when Naomi comes back into Bethlehem, the land is still there. And somehow, somehow either uh, Naomi put it up for sale or Boaz knew that's what she was going to do. And so he says to this near kinsman redeemer who had the first right to buy this land redeem it. If you're going to redeem it, redeem it. If not, let me know because I'm next in line. Now, what's going on here? Why is this such a big deal? Well, what we need to understand, dear church, is this. Land to the Israelites was part of the covenant that they had with God. Remember God talked to Abram? This was years and years before this, and he told them, he told Abram, "I'm going to make you into a great nation." So that's First part of the promise, first part of the covenant between God. I'm going to make you a great nation. But then he goes, and all other nations are going to be blessed through you second part but then there's this third part and I'm going to provide you land the land of Canaan it will be yours land was part of the covenant that God made with his people and it hadn't been long since Ruth was written that the people in Joshua the book of Joshua had gone into and taken over Canaan and the land had been distributed to the twelve tribes and within those twelve tribes it was distributed to the different clans of those twelve tribes and in those clans it was distributed to the different families of those 12 tribes. And this is the point. Land went hand in hand with lineage. You had land, you were experiencing the covenant promise of God. If you didn't have land, you didn't have lineage. So land was very important. And so what's going on here is Naomi's going to sell this land, but there was this this redeemer, this kinsman-redeemer law given to us in Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-five, which says, if I can find it, I will read it to you. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So this nearest kinsman-redeemer has the first right to buy it. And so Boaz is putting it on the line. Listen, if you're going to redeem it, redeem it. If not, let me know. I'll redeem it. And we all say, what do we say? We want Boaz. We want Boaz. You're not saying it, but okay. I know you're saying it in your heart. We, want, we don't want him to redeem it. He's Mr. So-and-so. He's a no-name. He's a nobody. We've seen all about Boaz. We want Boaz. We don't want this guy to do it. And so our hearts sink when we read at the end of verse 4. And he said, I will redeem it. No! We want to yell, right? That's what you're wanting to do? We want to say, no, he's going he's gonna to redeem it. Now, now you've you got to understand something, dear church. This, this kinsman redeemer, he's no dummy. He's a wise businessman. Two things are going to happen if he redeems this land. One, his reputation is going to be built up. Oh, there goes the, the redeemer. He redeemed Naomi and Ruth. He, he's the one that took care of them. He's the one that's going to help provide for them. Oh, his reputation will be built. But secondly, he's no fool. He knows how old Naomi is. He knows that as long as she's living... The proceeds of that land go to her to provide for her. But when she dies, (laughs) all mine. That's what he's thinking. That land is going to be mine. All mine. He he feels like he woke up on the right side of bed today. He feels like this is his his lucky day. He gets to buy this land, and eventually it's going to become his. But then in verse 5, Boaz lays it on the line. Then Boaz said, verse 5, The day that you buy the field from the the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. What's going on here? Some have suggested, again, this is the Leverite marriage. I would submit to you I don't think so, because neither Boaz nor this kinsman redeemer are brothers to Malon, who was Ruth's husband. They're not brothers. That was the right of a brother, the, the Leverite marriage, to, married, to marry the, the deceased brother's widow so as to carry on his name. This is not a Leverite marriage. What's going on here? One of two possibilities. Some translations say, "...in the day that you buy the land, I also inquire Ruth." They take the word you in verse 5 and they change it to the word I. So what's, what's Boaz saying is in that situation, he's saying, listen, you're going to buy the land, but I'm going I'm to redeem Ruth. I'm going to marry her, which means our firstborn is going to be the heir of Elimelech, which means even if Naomi dies, there will still be an heir to the land. Some have suggested what Boaz means is you buy the land, you redeem the land, I'll redeem Ruth. But I also say that there's this other possibility that perhaps Naomi put that stipulation on this piece of land, that the one who redeems the land must also redeem my daughter-in-law Ruth. Either way, you have the same scenario. Either way, the name Elimelech will be carried on through that inheritance. Either way, what happens here in this deal is this. Yes, this kinsman redeemer might have a greater reputation, but he will not get the land. That's what is going on here. He's going to buy piece of property that he will never ever own it will always be hers and it will be her uh, her children's inheritance it will be theirs not his he would throw money away you might as well take a bunch of money and just light it on fire Fire. exactly (laughs) exactly fire So what does that Redeemer say? He calculates it out. He considers the cost. He he pencils everything out. And he realizes this is a stupid thing to do. And so verse 6 says, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And we're going, we wanted Boaz, and we got Boaz. Right? Right? Because now Boaz is going to redeem it. And Boaz is going to confirm this first by the elders, verse 7. Now this was the custom, or excuse me, first by the sandal. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. Amen. And we have our Redeemer. It's confirmed by a sandal. Now, we don't have time to go into great detail here, but there is this blessed redemption that takes place, confirmed by a sandal, confirmed by the witnesses. The witness, then in verse 11, first part, says, Then all the people said, Who are at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. It's a done deal. The land is going to be purchased. It's going to be given back to the inheritor of Elimelech, which becomes actually in this situation the firstborn male son, male child of Ruth and Boaz. See, here's the deal. Boaz will not inherit the land. Boaz is taking that money and lighting it on fire, but there's a difference. There's a difference here. Do you know what it is? It's what we talked about at the very beginning. It's that, aha, there's love. We can point to it. We can see it. We can say, that's it. See, Boaz is willing to sacrificially redeem because he loves. What we come to understand in this tale, this true tale of two redeemers, is the one who, is, who loves the most is most willing to sacrificially redeem. The one who loves the most is most willing to sacrificially redeem. And we say, that's it. That's love. He's going to buy property that will never be his. And he's going to give up his firstborn son to not be his inheritor, but to be Elimelech's inheritor. He's willing to put that all on the line. Why? Because he loves. He loves. See, for him, redemption is not a a calculated business transaction. For him, redemption is all about love. He loves Ruth. He cares deeply about Naomi. And so he is willing to sacrificially redeem. And the people say, this is gonna be blessed middle of verse 11. They said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. There's blessing on Ruth. May she become as important to the nation of Israel as Rachel and Leah, who were, who were the, uh, the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then there's a blessing on Boaz. May you Act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Boaz, may you have a great name. May you be known. May you have a a, a great lineage, even a kingly lineage. Verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Blessing is poured out upon him and the household now saying, just as Perez, who was the one who who was the the uh, uh, the what's the word I'm looking for, he was the one at the top of the inherit or the lineage that you know, of the people in Bethlehem. He was the uh, you know the big dude, the the guy that brought out Bethlehem. That was are you, are you catching me? He he's he's important, okay? And, and so, blessing be yours is what the people say. Because of this sacrificial redemption that demonstrated Boaz's love, we have this blessing being poured out. And the amazing thing is each one of these blessings come true. Each one of these prayers actually take place. But as we think about that statement, as we think about the, the, being able to point to this and say that's love, as we, we're able to say that the one who loves the most is most willing to sacrificially redeem, does it not remind us of someone else this time of year? Our Lord, Jesus Christ... He came to this earth and He is the one who loves us the most. He loves you the most. Don't go away without understanding that and knowing that. He is the one who loves you most. I don't care what situation you find yourself in. I don't care what, whether you have walked away from Him. I don't care whether you think highly of Him or not. You need to know today that above all things, He loves you the most. And you say, but Pastor... I can't believe that today. Well, here's why you believe it because he sent his son to this earth. Let me read to you something out of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Remember? We can't define love, but we can point and say, ah, that's love. So this is what this verse is saying. Here's how we point and find out whether he truly loves us or not. And here's what it says, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love. God sent his only son into the world. How do you know God loves you? Because he sent his son for you that you might have life. That's love. But it gets even better. Listen to the next part, the next verse. Verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, that word propitiation is a fun word to say, isn't it? You got to be careful you might say something wrong if you if you mispronounce it but propitiation it means he is the sacrifice the once for all sacrifice that pleases God's wrath. We don't like to talk about this but the truth is God is a holy God. He is a just, he is a righteous God and therefore as a holy God, he must pour out wrath upon sin. He hates sin. He hates sin. And here's the sad truth. The Bible says you and I, apart from Jesus Christ, are all sinners. And you know what that also says? The Bible says, as a result of that, we become objects of God's wrath. But at the same time, He is wrathful on sin. He loved us so much that He sent His Son, who came to this earth, was laid in that manger. But you need to understand, beyond that manger manger was the shadow of the cross where Jesus would die and he would experience the cup of God's wrath for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us so much that he sent his son to this earth and 33 years later, he went to the cross and bore God's wrath. For our sin. That's how much he loves us. The one who loves you the most is most willing to sacrificially redeem you. And that's exactly what we have at Christmas. The cradle always points to the cross. And the cross reveals to us the love of God. You need to know he loves you. He loves you. It's not for him. It's not just a business transaction. If that were the case, he wouldn't have sent his son. His son would not have died on the cross, but he loves you. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I do know this. You need to look to the cross and not the situation you find yourself in to realize how much God loves you. He loves you, and he told you so by sending his son to die on on that cross for my sin and for your sin and to raise again on the third day. And so right now, we want to take time and we want to remember that. We, we want to celebrate. We want to rejoice. And, and, and so we're going to partake in communion. And maybe as you've noticed as you came in, there are, there are communion tables, two set up here and two set up back. We're going to have the, the worship team come back up and I'm going to pray and as they lead us in song or do a special song, I think is what it is, then I just invite you when you feel ready to come to the communion table. Remember this, the bread reminds us of the body of Christ that was, that was put on that cross. He became flesh and blood for us. The cup reminds us of his blood where the forgiveness of sin actually took place. He shed his own blood to forgive us of our sin and so we remember our Savior's death until he comes we remember that he died for us in demonstration of his love so let me pray The worship team will come back up and then as you feel ready you come on up and partake of communion father we'd come to you we thank you so much for your love for us and father I have to confess that it's almost too good to believe that You have come, You have sent Your Son Jesus in the flesh who, who became for us, who took upon Himself our sin and became for us the way to have sins forgiven. Father, I just pray for anybody in this place this morning who have never put their hope, their trust, their faith in Jesus as their Savior, as the one who can take away their sin and bring, you, uh, bring them into right relationship with you. I pray that tomorrow, this morning would be the morning on Christmas Eve, 2017, would be the day. Father, we pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup that we're about to partake. We pray that this would not just be something that we go through the motions of, but something we'd really think about. That we would truly praise you for your love toward us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow! Thank you. Thank you. I hope you... I hope you've heard that. He loves you. He has sacrificially made a way to redeem you through His only Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, I trust, I hope that you know Jesus, because without Jesus, there's no hope. See, as we, as we finish out this, and we're going to do it very quickly, but as we finish out chapter 4, what we see is this sacrificial love of Boaz, a, a, a redeemer to both Naomi and Ruth, we see the hope that he brings. There's great hope when we know that there's this love of a Redeemer. The, sacrifice, or the sacrificial love of a Redeemer gives great hope. And as we pick it up now in verse 13, what we're going to see is a total reversal of chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In those first five verses of chapter 1, we see nothing but doom, despair, and agony on me. Any hee-haw fans? Okay, some of you remember that. But that's what it is. Doom, despair, and agony. Naomi and her husband and two boys, they leave Bethlehem because there's a famine They go into Moab, a foreign country. While they're there, her husband dies. Her two sons die. And ten years later, she's coming back into Bethlehem, and she says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Doom, despair, agony. But now in these next five verses, we see a great reversal, all because of the sacrificial love of a Redeemer. Notice what happens, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. First, she becomes his wife. He promised to marry her, he marries her. But here's what I want to point out real quick. There is a redundancy here. There is a, there is a double statement Boaz took Ruth, literally he took her home, which in that culture meant they were married. But then it says, and she became his wife. Why does this wonderful master storyteller do that? So that you and I would recognize from the depths of where she came. Ruth was known as the Moabitess earlier. She was known as a maidservant. She was known as a foreigner. She was known as a servant. And now she's called Wife and wife of no other than Boaz, who was a worthy man. This is an incredible thing. All because of the sacrificial love of this Redeemer, she becomes a wife, but even more than that, she becomes a mommy. Notice the rest of verse 13. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. A son was born. Notice. Who is attributed to causing this to happen? The Lord. It is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who is attributed to do this. A son is given to Ruth. There is the lineage of Elimelech is going to continue. Their first child, as the Lord would have it, is a son. So a son is given to Ruth, but notice what happens next. Verse 14, as that son came, then the women said to Naomi, verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There's a redeemer for Naomi. Naomi was down, she was despairing, she was down, she was, she was, she was in the darkest of God's providence, and now she has a redeemer A redeemer who, furthermore, they said, may he be renowned in Israel. Speaking of the son that was born, may he be known. May his name be renowned. May he have a strong reputation. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. There, she has a redeemer, somebody who will carry on the family name, somebody who will restore life to the deadness uh, uh, that had, she had experienced, somebody who would carry on the name Elimelech, her dead, deceased husband, somebody who would help her in her old age. She now has a redeemer. But notice verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Interesting statement there. Typically a father would name his son. But here, the women. Who are these women? They're the same women who back in chapter 1 were whispering to one another, Is that, Isn't that Naomi. Isn't that We haven't seen her for 10 years. Isn't that Naomi? She looks way different. She she doesn't look as happy. She doesn't look as pleasant as she once did. Isn't that Naomi? Now they're the ones who are giving a name, and they name him Obed. A son has been given to Ruth. A redeemer has been provided by God for Naomi. But notice this next verse, or next part. He, Obed, was the father of Jesse, the father of what, who? David! David! Here's what we need to understand, brothers and sisters. This sacrifice of this Redeemer affected not only Ruth, it didn't just affect Naomi and their household. It affected the whole nation of Israel, for from them came a king who was known as a man after God's own heart, who would bring the hearts of God's people back to God, King David. He is a redeemer of the people. Brothers and sisters, the hope that this brings, the hope that this provides, and the question for us today is do you have such hope? This was true of Israel, King David came, but where's our hope today?